It's the third Thursday of the month, and we're off the bricks and on the air. You're listening to a poetry podcast from Brick Street Poetry. How to sharpen a knife. Your metaphor is your whetstone. Choose well. Perhaps a swallow, a comet, a bell, an amethyst, the moon. Wet it with tears. A typhoon, the amber sap wrung from fears. Lay one side of the blade, dull edge against stone, and hone it thus, hard as though against bone, in one direction only, back and forth, and the metal's blaze, rough, loses its worth. Now the other side, slow, easy strokes, same direction, wide edge to the point of pain, tendered thus, when you thrust the sharpened blade between unwary ribs, it should rend as if through parchment, shearing burnished art past muscle, sinew deep into the heart. You've been listening to poet Dr. Samuel Perelto. He is also a physicist, filmmaker, and award-winning author. And most importantly for this program, the creative force behind the idea and the actualization of the Lunar Codex, which is his project to archive an incredible array of artistic work on the moon. Samuel, it's great to have you here today on Off the Bricks. Thanks you very much for the invitation, Joyce. It's, I, I'm very pleased to be here. Now, that first poem that you read, uh, liked it a lot, needless to say. And I wanted to start with that because I kind of wanted to start with your um, your being a poet. Uh, and obviously this this poem is about writing poetry. So tell us a little bit about how you, uh, when you started writing poetry, kind of what it means to you and, and how you sort of see yourself as a poet, if you would. Well, the earliest that I remember writing poetry, I was something like eight or nine years old. It must have been earlier than that, but I started committing it to paper at around that time. And I still have that little book of uh, poetry because my mother kept it for me. And uh, and essentially, I, it was it was the usual type of uh, poetry that you write when you're uh, that age. You rhyme it uh, with you rhyme it easily. Red head bed and wed sort of thing and the love of poetry just grew from there my mother was a uh is an abstract artist and my dad is a playwright so i was surrounded by art from the from the very beginning and i learned both to love poetry and to love art but it was uh, the writing that basically stuck with me through all of these years uh painting is a is a uh uh a craft that you've got to do with a lot of uh, accoutrements. You need the canvas, you need the palette, you need the paints. But writing you can do anywhere. So my dad told me as I grew up, well, you don't really want to be a writer because you can't make a living as a writer. You should do something practical like become an engineer. So I kind of listened to him. But he also did say, uh, you can still, doesn't mean you can't do the writing. Or, or the art, just continue it on, uh, learn a trade, 
that you will, and then do the do the, the the poetry in your spare time. So that's what I did all throughout uh, my high school, my university, all up to my PhD level, and my career. I kept on writing poetry in the background, and poetry has permeated every aspect of art that I've done, whether it be film, whether it be short story writing, or lately uh, painting. Well, you know, it sounds to me like you had a pretty wise father to tell you that. And then also you were pretty wise to listen to him, you know, because sometimes you, when, when a parent tells us to do something, we tend to do the opposite thing. So it, it appears to me it's worked out pretty well for you because you have been able to to do a great variety of things uh, in your life, which is is a, a great thing. Now, one of the things that I read online uh, about you uh, in a quote was that uh, you were talking something about talking about how a poet looks at the world a little differently from others. And that so does a scientist. And the fact that you've gotten to be both has been such a good thing. And also the fact that you can find beauty in both the, the, the written and spoken word and, and also uh, in a painting or in some scientific theory or principle. Um, tell us a little bit about how that works for you. Well, what it does is if you imagine uh, a writer your 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 the, the what your tools are are essentially your words. So if you grew up in France and you grew up with a language that's very musical, very beautiful, and the way that you write is affected by that, and uh, it's the same with uh, with English and the same with uh, with 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 all sorts of different languages. Those are your tools. Your tools are the words. Uh, you grow up with a vocabulary that you use to shape the poetry that you that you write with. Now, if in addition, uh, you are a scientist, and I'm a physicist by trade, I, I, I took my uh, PhD at the University of Wales in laser physics, but I had a love of astronomy and the universe and, uh, and space uh, and all sorts of sciences. Uh, and what that does is it gives you an extra vocabulary. So in, in rather than just the vocabulary uh, that you've inherited from Shakespeare or from the other poets that you've read, you now have a vocabulary that's expanded by, uh, by the science. When, yeah, really your interest in um, astronomy and, and space and so forth, it sort of gives you the universe to work with, doesn't it? Like you said, you have all these thing, examples out there that you can use for metaphor, which is a great thing. And along those lines, let's read another poem of yours, if you will, Bereft. So bereft, as, as, as you can tell, is, 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 is a word that means uh, uh, that you've lost something. You, 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 it, it, and and what, I, what, I, what I try to do in this particular poem is to basically use the different metaphors of science to show that, that absence, that something is missing. So here it is. Bereft. If you let go my hand, the air will not rush back in to fill the empty space, rejected by the anguish of my skin, bereft of your palm's touch. If you leave my side, the space beside me will empty like the eye of a whirlwind, 
leaves swirling outside the scope of these forsaken arms. If you go away from me, stars will fall from my night sky, emptied as from an eclipse, and darkness will drift like smoke, choking my dissipated heart. Therefore, never leave me, love, lest my universe collapse in on itself a black hole devouring its own atoms, so desolate as the gravity of a neutron star. Now, I'm kind of interested, Samuel, when did you write this poem? How long ago might you have written this poem? This poem was written oh, maybe 20 or so years ago. Okay, that, yeah. uh, and, and, and so definitely I was in, in, in the, at the height of my scientific career. Uh, reading books about science, uh, doing science, watching movies. And, and so uh, the, the trick is actually to try to use a scientific metaphor that doesn't alienate your audience. You can't really go into the, the intricacies of 11-dimensional space or whatever, or you've got to make it so that your audience who may not know all of these things will will get it intuitively and that's that that's the real trick because i have read some scientific based poems that are just impenetrable unfortunately you you have to know what it's all about but uh, but yeah yeah no i was just gonna say maybe 20 years ago uh, people m still might not have gotten some of these but but now that we're you know, that NASA, we're hearing from NASA and there are all these things going on. I, I think maybe people can relate to this poem maybe better today. You had all that knowledge back 20 years ago because you were studying it. I'm not sure that we had uh, as much understanding uh, about, well, I know we didn't have as much understanding as, as we have today of the universe. So, so I think we're thinking more about these things and the public understands these metaphors, I think better today than they probably did. Uh, certainly some people understood it, but, but you know, overall, a lot more people can, can really relate and understand this today, I think. Which That's is, definitely true. And if you watch, you know, movies like Interstellar or, or something like that, you definitely will have a better chance of the understanding. Now, some people think that maybe you are, you, your project uh, of sending all of this artwork to the moon, uh, some people have definitely said and thought about the fact that, you know, you're, you're really trying to get it up there for some alien life that might exist or might come by someday. Uh, I know why I think it should be there, but explain, you know, tell us a little bit about this motivation. Uh, you obviously have the poetry background. You've got the you've got the uh, at least interest in 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 love of art, if not, you know, it being your main artistic activity. Um, but but what? How did you come to this idea of putting all this artwork on uh, on the moon? Well. The, it, it, it started, obviously, uh, we weren't the first to think of this. There were, during the Apollo series, folks had already put artwork on the moon. Uh, they, they had smuggled a piece of ceramic tile in which uh, artists like Pablo Picasso had etched a little picture and uh, uh, Andy Warhol, sorry. And, uh, and uh, they were put on the moon, strapped to a leg of the lunar module and put there. Later on, there was an aluminum statue of the fallen astronaut that was there. So that's 
already inspiring. That tells you that, gosh, you can you can have works that are on the moon. That has that galvanized uh, the the thought of, of what can be done to do that. And obviously, because there's very little erosion on the moon, uh, these artworks are going to last forever. Essentially, it, they're not subject to the kinds of erosions and things that we have here on Earth. Um, but it didn't look possible until uh, until very lately, actually, when uh, NASA started uh, the parceling out its lunar lander programs to private companies. And these private companies who are going to build the landers that would go to the moon not only had space for NASA instruments, but they would they'd also have space for other other folks, other universities, academic institutions and private individuals. Once they opened up it up to private individuals, I thought, gosh, would it be possible for me to 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 make use of that? And indeed, if you investigate further, it was possible. And that's when you know several of us, I wasn't the only one with the idea, jumped on it, jumped on it and said, gosh, I'm going to send something up there. Uh, other folks started doing things like, well, if you want your DNA or your ashes, sent up to the moon, the ashes of a loved one or your pet. We'll do that for you for $99.95 or whatever it is. But the, the, the idea that I had essentially was that we could do what these uh, artists did in the past. They, they, they put their art on the moon and it stayed there as a memento forever. Uh, and I did that for my, I, I did that for my poetry and then for my anthology books which had like multiple authors in each anthology. And then it just grew and grew and grew from there to encompass not just poetry, but music, writing, uh, uh, film. And now we have uh, over 30,000 uh, creatives on board representing, as of today, 161 countries. So it's become truly a global project, as it were. It's, it's quite exciting. And the Polaris anthology that you held is in the, the spirit of that, where it's not just your poem that goes up, but but when you ask for poetry from folks all over the world, even Antarctica, even I had not thought to ask for folks from Antarctica, that all basically led to this effort being something that was truly global. Nobody else, you know, there's no other project that I know of that is truly this global. There's, there's a lot that have contributions from different countries, but from 161 countries, just it, it, this, is, this is so far the only one. You know, I was really excited about the uh, Antarctica group too, because they were studying meteorites. So there was a real connection to, to space from that standpoint as to what they were doing here on earth. And, I, it, and it was just great to have their take on uh, really a continent that most of us here on earth don't really know too much about. So, mm -hmm. so uh, it was, it was really good to have their poems. And I, I was, it, it was brilliant. Those. The other thing great about the Polaris uh, uh, trilogy that, that you helmed, actually, I thought was that it contained works, not just in English, but also in the, in the native languages. And, and, and this was something that the Lunar Codec project hadn't done before. Basically, the only way that I was able to curate things was to, be, was to curate things that I could understand or that my gallerists and curators could understand. That was English, and, or we did translations. But 
you included also poetry in their original languages. And that was just a remarkable addition to the to the codex. Thank you very much. Well, Samuel, I felt very strongly about that because the moon doesn't belong to just one country. You know, it, it's the moon, it's Earth's moon, and we're all part of Earth. So I, I wanted to find as, as many, and I wanted to have, I mean, language is just like what you're saying, you know, how you gain from being exposed to the French, even though maybe it's not one of your, you know, your the language that you use every day, the exposure to it and how that can be enriching. So I thought it was enriching to have uh, these other languages included. And now here's the other thing, how, because people kind of don't understand this and kind of, again, they're kind of thinking maybe some Martian is going to come land on the moon oh. but, but actually, and read this stuff. But actually, it's kind of the other way around. Basically, what NASA is doing right now is going to the moon, looking at as it as a base to go on to Mars and to other places, and that's all because right. of the water um, that they believe that they're finding there, um, because that is going to make space travel to Mars much less of a burden. Uh, if you can get there without having to take water with you, you don't have to have as much thrust to get out of Earth's gravity. So, and, and it just, there's all kinds of great things about that situation. Tell exactly me, right. Yeah, so, so, but but some people think, and, and again, a lot of people th think, because again, I always first talked about these, you know, being, it being a time capsule, these being time capsules. And it, I think it makes, a lot of people think that they're buried. Well, they're not being buried on the moon. They're in those moon boxes, which are attached to the lander. That's uh, right. But, but, and at one point, they're able, they are able to be read there, correct? But if the moon box is locked up, is there a time when it has to be unlocked in order for, uh, you know, uh, people to read it there? Because no, there's, maybe, yeah, there's no set time for them to, 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 un to open it. Okay. Uh, but 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 uh, but they are made to be openable by very standard tools, if you like. Okay. So so I don't know exactly what the tools are. It could be a hex key, like what you find in IKEA, perhaps. But they're very very obvious how you can open up the boxes. And I think the intent is to just leave it there for a generation or more at least. I mean, if if for example they were opened up at in the next two years, well that time capsule aspect of it is is kind of lost right you're you're talking to the next generation if you like but what isn't lost is the fact that you've basically archived this all this art uh safely and in, in a place that is beyond the ravages of earth's climate change or or wars or or what what kind whatever kind of upheavals you may have here on earth yeah and and for me it's you know, our our science is part of humanity, but our art and culture is part of our humanity too. And That's it's right. just good to have it there. And then also, as you said, as we're talking about from the standpoint of future bases and so forth, it's not just going to be English speakers who are going to be there. They're going to be probably Chinese, Japanese, you know, Hindu, who, who people, we, we people that speak different languages. So that's another reason why I thought it was would be good to have not just English there, 
uh, for the for the future, that there would be things there that that uh, people who speak other languages and 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 maybe are writing from an, another culture, like the Native Americans that I have in the book, who are who are you know writing uh, from their their native their Native American culture. Um, That's right. It, it's. I think it's good to have that there because, again, I think we, you know, if 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 they're right about the, the moon being a, a base sometime, then you're going to have a variety of people there. So, mm -hmm. okay, well, let's let's hear another one of your poems. Um, what about David? Read. Can you read David for us? David. David is a uh, it's 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 an ekphrasis uh, uh, type of poem. It's a poem uh, that is inspired by another uh, by another piece of art, if you like. And the uh, the epigraph here uh, from Michelangelo just tells you that this is the David of Michelangelo. It's an indication that we've got the statue of David. And if we don't, uh, listeners don't know exactly what this is. This is the David. Uh, who who's basically going into battle against Goliath, uh, and 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 this is just before David enters the battle. So he's standing uh, in white marble with his slingshot slung across his shoulder. He's looking up that way in the distance, and he's basically he hasn't entered the battle yet or swung his slingshot, and uh, and he's sizing up his opponent. And uh, if you know the story, the story is that this young boy, David, basically swings his slingshot. They shoot the rock right into the forehead of Goliath and wins the battle. And that's the biblical story that, that uh, people should have an idea of before they enter this poem. That's, that's, that's the whole thing. But even without it, uh, even without that, you can appreciate it because I mix up two things here. I, I have the story of David, uh, who is who is basically going into battle with uh, with uh, uh, Goliath, and the other story is Michelangelo himself, and that's that's the the actual setting of the poem is Michelangelo himself looking at that block of marble, trying to figure out what is it that he's going to do with this block of marble, and and trying to create a masterpiece from it. And envisioning David within, and so it's those two ideas: David versus Goliath, Michelangelo versus that stone uh, of marble, and and trying to tell both stories at once. And if I so, just say this, you know, for the poet, it's the black blank page, right? For for Michelangelo, it's that piece of, of stone, but for the poet, yeah. it's, the, it's the blank page. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, so this is again another uh, poem about the art of creating art, mm -hmm. whether it be whether it be sculpture or poetry. David, Davide Poliaframbo e io Polarco Michelangelo. Back again, the Valley of Ila, surrounded by the scaffolding of light, Mediterranean oak and terebinth. You and I, we have been in single combat 40 days and 40 nights, your shadow looming over penitence like a raft. You've savaged my dreams, 
a lion stalking among the grasses, a black bear tearing at flesh, and I, a ruddy boy, alone. Now I stand, unarmored, unadorned, stone in one fist, conviction in the other. I watch your face, try to find it in your eyes, dark, furrowed, in that contemptuous glare. There, fear, flickering like a borrowed wick, it comes to this, rock against blade, marble against faith, this armory of heaven vengefully clenched, a coiled up serpent tongue. Rise up then, unquarried Colossus, rise, and I will sling defiance into your disdain, chisel deep into your brow the tetragrammaton of my God. Pretty powerful. Michelangelo is, uh, well, he was uh, quite a sculptor for sure. Yeah. And incredibly, Michelangelo was a poet as well. And, and He's... it would be hard to fa face that piece of rock, wouldn't it? But mm -hmm. that's part of the, I guess that is also part of the, the talent of a, of somebody that does sculpting like that is that they can somehow see the form within that block. It, it's quite beautiful to look at. And, and one of the reasons I wrote this is because uh, I did discover that Michelangelo was a poet and I was quite amazed. And so, so I'm reading a book right now of the translations of, uh, of, of his poetry. And they're not as his, his poetry is not obviously as famous as his sculpture. He was he was definitely at his peak as a as a visual artist. And uh, and uh, but 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 he's nevertheless quite a good poet as well. If we want to finish up, if you want to read your uh, letter to Neruda, uh, and and then if you have any, if you want to tell our listeners anything about where they might. Get, you've got all kinds of books, but you know, if you want to, if you want to have have one you want to particularly talk, uh, mention to them, or uh, give them a link to to where they might find your poetry and and maybe purchase one of your books, you can also do that. Great, thank you. So, letter to Neruda is essentially a a, a letter from a lover uh, to an imaginary Neruda who has basically wooed his wife, so to speak. It could be that the that that it, in actuality, it is a woman who has fallen in love with the poetry of Neruda and creates this image in her mind of, mm -hmm. of a Neruda and basically to the exclusion of everything else. So she's being held hostage by, by, by the poet, so to speak. This is, uh, if you've ever fallen in love with a poet, this sometimes happens to you. They forget you and stay with their own writing and their own poetry books. Letter to Neruda. You have been my woman's lover now for seven years, ever since your two souls met at La Isla Negra. Yes, I have known about your assignations for some time. Your breakfast tete-a-tetes, your late-night trysts, midday intermezzos punctuated by wine and passionate exclamation. I have unearthed your letters, your amorous affirmations secreted in her books, your verses 
excerpted in diaries. I beg of you, release her captive heart. You have no need of her. Your mistresses surround you. Innumerable are your conquests. And I, I have only her. She fills my soul. Without her, I am empty. I love her. And sometimes in her absent eyes, I see the flash of remembrance. And I think sometimes she might still love me too. But I have not your art nor scope. Passion flows like torrents from your pen where they are quenched from my own. You are a force of nature, an earthquake, a hurricane. And I'm left to woo her with nothing but my shop-worn metaphors, my contrived rhymes, my incompetent pentameter. So I've gathered for you this ransom. 140 poems, all I have. I've packed them in my well-worn suitcase in verses of small denomination. Take them. Only tell her you will see her no more. That your art is for another. That you will always cherish your moments together. Then unbind her hands. Loose her blindfold. Let her run back to me. Back to my waiting heart. Inadequate, but true. Thanks very much, Joyce, for giving me this chance to read my poetry and to talk to you. It's been great. If you want more of my poetry, uh, you can get them on Amazon. Uh, just search my name, Samuel Peralta, and you should find it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Samuel. It was great to have you here today. Time to pause for a natural moment with a bit of poetry focusing on our non-human world. Today's natural moment poem is The Freedom of the Moon by Robert Frost. I've tried the new moon tilted in the air above a hazy tree and farmhouse cluster as you might try a jewel in your hair. I've tried it fine with little breadth of luster. Alone or in one ornament combining with one first water start almost shining. I put it shining anywhere I please, by walking slowly on some evening ladder. I pulled it from a crate of crooked trees and brought it over glossy water greater and dropped it in and seen the image wallow, the color run, all sorts of wonder follow. This program would not have been possible without the help of our creators and creatives. Our signature music is composed and performed by Iona Wagner. Generous supporters of Off the Bricks include Indiana Humanities, the Arts Council of Indianapolis, and the City of Indianapolis. We release new episodes of Off the Bricks on the third Thursday of each month, so keep an ear out for us. Thank you for joining us, poets and poetry lovers. Good poetry enriches our day and enlightens us about ourselves and the world. Join us again the third Thursday of the month as we bring you poetry off the bricks.